Can I tell you about the worst thing that happened to me this week? Last night I watched this episode of Chopped. And the theme was the year 3000. And the theme wasn't even the worst part of the episode. So, um, like, they're cooking with things like sustainable squash and ants. And it's like these are things that require less water or are, like, self-sustaining and, like, pea protein milk and things like that. So, like, the first round, like, so, like, the contestants introduce themselves and there's, like, two guys and one of them's like, I'm here because my kids made me do it. And the other guy's like, I only need one more tattoo. Chopped champion. And it's like some indiscernible accent, accent, like a real Tommy Wiseau kind of situation. And then there's like the last two contestants. And there's like this woman with kind of like no neck. And like the slot of tattoos that you would expect, like from um, like a rough rough and tumble kind of chef i would have been doing rocky horror callbacks the whole time she's like hey i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a recovering addict and you know i've been through a lot i'm a former junkie but i uh, you know i'm from south and i love cajun food and i want to bring that to new york city and i want to open a food truck of uh of like uh do crawfish boiling and things like that i'm just like wow compelling story like i think she's gonna win it uh, and then the last guy comes on. He's like, hi, if I win everything, I'm going to give it all to my wife. Okay, wife so like, that's the intro. Hardcore wife guy, right? And so you're like, all right, what's going to happen? So like the first round, they get their ingredients like, okay, this is weird. Um and like they're cooking and like there's some standard drama like they're going through their stories and like this guy keeps talking about his wife and then this other guy like can't cook the reset like he's trying to make a risotto in 20 minutes for an appetizer like what the hell and then you know the standard drama and so like the risotto guy gets chopped who was like the guy who wants to get the tattoo of chopped which wasn't gonna happen not compelling not compelling enough <laughs> so like the entree round comes around and it's like the guy who's doing it for because of his kids the wife guy and like the recovering drug addict and, who wants to open the food truck and so you're like okay like this is interesting now and so they have to do sunflowers and some uh, ostrich and something else jesus or uh, some sort of like fornio, fo- fornio, which is like a some sort of like low, easy to cook grain, which is like a cream of wheat style thing. Anyway, so wife guy is like, oh yeah, sunflowers. My wife is from Ohio, and these are everywhere. <laughs> it's like okay, wife guy, and the food truck is obviously very important to like this recovering. Uh, substance user and so she's just like you know i'm gonna cook this cajun style because that's like that is my roots that's what i'm gonna do and that's what i'm here to show everyone that i know how to do and like she's given it her all and then there's like the other guy who's whatever they're not really focusing on him <laughs> and so they go into the judging and they're like what's motivating you and so we get like the drug we get the drug addiction story and like the judges are very compelled by that. And Mark Murphy even says like, Oh wow. Like Cajun food in New York, New York city. No one's doing that. Like, that's really great. Like they're into it. And then wife guy goes and they're like, Hey, like, where do you cook? And he goes, well, I used to cook at 
yada 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 like all these like places in new york and stuff i guess like i i don't really know food i don't actually care that much about food <laughs> this is why i watch chopped is for things like this because it's he used so to cook at dorcia <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah barcade <laughs> whatever it was an american psycho He's like, but then, you know, eight months ago, every my whole world turned upside down. My wife was diagnosed with stage four brain cancer. And so me and my family packed up and moved to North Carolina so we could, like, take care of her and her health and make sure that, like, she has everything she needs. It's all for her right now. Like, bomb dropped, right? And so... As they're cutting to commercial, the Cajun food truck recovering drug addict says, and I, I really know I shouldn't be defining her that way, but like that's how she keeps defining herself on the show as well, says, I'm not getting chopped. I know I'm not getting chopped. So confidently. So they come back from commercial break. Guess who gets chopped? Our Cajun friend. <laughs> uh, who gave it her all? And so, like, the dessert round happens, and despite some sloppy plating, Wife Guy wins it all. But it doesn't end there. As they are cutting to the credits, before it totally wraps up, you see an In Loving Memory title, dot, 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 and it, like, says a name and, like, some dates, and like it doesn't really register with me. And then it shows the picture. And it's it's the Cajun food truck person who was the contestant on the show who got chopped in the entree round. Why? And not wife guy's wife. Not wife guy's wife. What, what a, a twist. twist. Right? <laughs> what? This is like RuPaul's drag race. Like I know. I was like season 50, episode three. It's coming for you. Wow. Damn. That's nuts. Is Wife Guy's wife okay? I have no idea. Because they don't care. <laughs> no one gives a shit. <laughs> Jesus. Pour one out for our Cajun friend. Yeah. It's for you, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, Taylor. This episode goes out to Taylor. <laughs> I didn't know the contestant's name until that title card either. <laughs> like, I was like, who the fuck is Taylor? <laughs> oh, God. The host of Chop looks like Jason Isaacs. Ted if he, Allen? Like, if he, like, lived former, in the suburbs. Formerly one of the original Fab Five of the first Queer Eye. Yeah, he looks like the guy who played Lucius Malfoy. Oh. But, I like, if he lived in the is. suburbs. Yeah, Jason Isaacs. He's been in other things, but, yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a British actor. Yeah, he's really good. Cat appearance! Cat, yep. cat time. This is Prax. Cat and yeah. cat. Where's Maud? Yeah. Is, Fuck if I know. She's doing her own thing, being an independent woman. Yeah, she's still fucked up from that chopped episode too. <laughs> <laughs> What's your cat's name? This is Prax. I also have Amos running around somewhere. I don't know where he is. Is that it's short for Prax. Praxis? Yeah, it is. It's good. Um, it's actually short for Praxity K. She's named after Praxity K. Meng. And Amos is named after Amos Burton, who are characters in The Expanse, which okay. I highly recommend both the book and the TV show. I mean, I trust anyone who's got I've like a, that's really good. a dressing screen. So, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good dressing screen. Yeah, it's pretty good. Justin looks so done. 
So that wraps up our episode of uh, Carrie's Chopped Recap. Uh, <laughs> Kat, thanks for coming on. Uh, we should do an episode about food you? in libraries. That'd be fun. <laughs> oh, that actually would. I have a story about that, about some placards. We do tons of food-related stuff, and we do pozole contests every year. We got Dia de Muertos going on. I bring Tupperware to work. <laughs> I'm Justin. I'm a scholar communications librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. I work as a sysadmin at a public library. My pronouns are she and they. I'm Jay. I'm an academic metadata librarian and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Carrie. I'm a health sciences librarian and my pronouns are she, her. And we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? I certainly would. I'm Kat. I am, uh, my pronouns are they, them. I am a professor at Bemidji State University in the psychology department, and I mostly teach courses related to sex and gender and research methods. And I'm also the co-founder and co-director of the Northwoods Queer Outreach. Thanks for coming on. I saw your presentation at the Open Education Conference. Um, and I think I added you on Twitter while it was still going on. And I was like, I'm just going to ask them on the podcast because this is pretty <laughs> cool. So, yeah, we're going to talk about open education and your specific course that you built, which is called Queer Psychology, which I thought was uh, very neat as someone who uh, went to a community college where everyone thought they were going to be a psych major because <laughs> everyone just really liked the psych professor. So his courses were like always really full because he was just a good teacher <laughs> and like really entertaining. So, uh yeah, that was. I took a bunch of actually advanced psych stuff in community college. So I took like uh, abnormal psych and uh, human sexuality. It was like sixteen. I'm like, I'm not sure how that works because like what they show in that class legally, but you know, <laughs> dual enrollment education. Yeah, I actually teach a human sexuality class at BSU, and uh, within the last month or so, learned that I have some PSEO students uh, and have had through my five years teaching that course. So I had a, a moment of horror when I realized I've probably shown porn to 17-year-olds in my class, uh, mm-hmm. which I wasn't jazzed about. Uh, but it, it you know, helped me to remember that, first of all, the content that I teach in human sexuality is, I think, necessary for everybody to know, but maybe in more age-appropriate ways. So... Um, I've never had an angry parent phone call, so I think I'll just take that as a sign that I squeaked under um, and and be more intentional maybe about showing naked people in class going forward. I mean, they're not going to tell their parents because they want to keep their, their supply coming. You know, That's they a fair have point. They want to have the cool professor who teaches human sexuality 
showing them porn in class. We had to watch those. You've probably seen these where they show sexual positions, but they're dressed in like black suits. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's an Lindsay old video. Doe in sex explanations has videos like that. Uh, I think Lindsay Doe is amazing. Uh, she's my hero. Uh, but I, I actually do a cop out for uh, sexual positions and show Wikimedia illustrations. Um, I did my first semester teaching. I did use some really what I thought were quaint porn scenes from like the 90s when porn had like plots back in the day it was like a, an actual production and in the reflection feedback I got from the students they really got hung up on why everybody was wearing birthday hats so I realized that that was distracting a little bit from what I wanted them to be focusing on which was of course like increasing porn literacy although I've gotten much better at teaching that but also sneaking in some queer porn and and like gauging how do you feel watching two dudes having sex um, so you know that's that's the kind of provocation that i enjoy in my classes sometimes sweet so no segment this week we're just gonna jump into it because i have been just off twitter because politics was happening um Sorry. so i just like don't everyone's just being an annoying lib and i'm sick of it so once they're, once they're back to posting normally, I'll maybe see something from Skitchen that annoyed me, but nothing this week. Just did my job, went to work. We, we haven't done an open education episode before, which is kind of weird because it's a big part of my job. Yeah, I've done a lot of open education stuff too, and I can't believe we've never talked about it either. We did do a porn episode though. Yeah, and we've done open access, but ne'er the twain shall meet. Yeah. Open access porn? Yeah, I, I believe Carrie said like to open her access. This is a quote from an old. I need to go make a drop out of that. Wait, hold on, I can do it. All right, hang on. Oh God, you wanna open my access? <laughs> There's the episode preview. All right, Carrie drop always made. delivers. You just witnessed a drop. Congrats. I lost my train of thought. What is open education? Choo choo. <laughs> we make drops. Anyway, so yeah, open education are practices that have to do with openly licensed materials and are combined with open pedagogical practices like non disposable assignments or doing things on Wikimedia, publishing, collaborating, creating materials for the course as you're doing it. There's a lot of different ways you can do open education and open pedagogy. And I'm excited to do more of it at work now that we have a little more capacity and have some more people and have more interest. I would love to do a project like like this. I saw some people who seemed very well funded with like armies of, of student workers to do cool stuff, which I don't think is what yeah. you did. Must be nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What? How does that work? But what got you interested in open education in general? At first, I, I didn't know what it was. So I think a lot of, uh, so I did my PhD in social psychology and I was, I think trained is a generous term, but I was trained to go into undergraduate education, probably graduate education to teach my own grad students. That didn't work out because of the market, but also 
I don't know. I don't think I was very competitive when I was at, fresh out of grad school. So I got a teaching focused job, which I did not anticipate enjoying so much. And I think it was the first year I was at BSU. I went to a presentation on cutting costs for students. A lot of our students are low income. They're people who are already working full-time jobs, who've got par- parents, well, have parents, but also have kids who are parents themselves. Um, the psychology program has a fully online program as well as a residential program. So we really have such a range of students and I'm really invested in lowering costs for them. And as librarians, I'm sure you're aware that traditional textbook publishing is ridiculous when it comes to costs. And while the like the quizzing platforms that the publishers have are better in some regards than just the plain textbook, they add more money to to the bill. So I went to that presentation and it just kind of hovered in the back of my mind. Like I could do this uh, in our university system. It's called the zero G. Now I have no idea why it's zero G. Anyways, like the this goal that we get to zero cost. Really, why is it G? It doesn't matter. Um, so the idea is that we as faculty try to reduce as much external costs that students have to pay. Awesome. So that's hovering in the back of my mind. And as I'm one of the downsides of being really obsessive about always having, like always improving, my coursework is that I continually reprep my courses. So I change textbooks too often. And with human sexuality, I really was looking for a good fit of accessible language. So it's not too, it's it's a 2000 level class. So I get first and second years, you know, occasionally juniors and seniors, but it's mostly first and second years who are fresh out of high school. So I don't want a lot of research citations like to read like a research article. Uh, so it has to be ex- accessible language. I want it to reflect human diversity. So much of our just textbooks in general are written for a cisgender, heterosexual, white audience, abled audience, middle-class audience. So I was really looking for a textbook that would have the language that I want, low amounts of pathologization of queer and trans identities. Also, and this is something that I've not found at all, like low pathologization of intersex identities and conditions. That is that is a high priority for me. And that is something I continually look for, but I wasn't finding it. Like there was no traditional textbook out there that I could find that was, that was good enough on language now. And of course, traditional, traditional published textbooks, like take years to update, like, you know, you're going to wait a year for the next edition to come out, which is going to be more expensive, but it's going to be outdated by the time you get it in front of your students. And especially around queer and trans identities, language changes so fast. I mean, I am terminally online and I am even surprised by the new language coming up and the new ways that specifically trans folks, but queer folks, trans folks find of expressing themselves and identifying themselves and their experiences. So an opportunity, I I saw a fax staff email and uh, an opportunity at the system level for an OER learning circle, a program for faculty to have half a credit of time to be in community with other faculty across other men's state institutions to explore redesigning a course with OER open educational resources or uh, create supplementary uh, resources for an existing OER textbook. And so I did that the summer of 2020. 
I planned for it, um, you know, at the beginning of the spring semester of 2020, and then something happened. So I didn't really anticipate like everything exploding in 2020. But here I am in the midst of this learning circle of trying to figure out how am I going to reprep human sexuality. I had a just a, a a few weeks where I was convinced that I could just write an open access textbook for human sexuality over the summer. I don't I don't know what I was thinking, but one of the great things about like regular meetings with other faculty, they were like, "Don't do that." <laughs> What are you doing? So that's where I really got on board with the concept of OER and the the point that you find stuff that's already there. You don't have to create it. So uh, my human sexuality course is the first one that I uh, redesigned with OER. And then as I was planning for the next year of courses, queer psychology was also on on my schedule. So I thought, well, similarly, there's no queer psychology textbook at all. So I figured, well, this is a perfect, perfect spot for me to deploy some OER as well. Yeah, I would say that's pretty uh, typical journey of getting involved in OER and realizing being the kind of faculty member who's always tinkering with your course, I feel like are also the faculty members who get really involved in OER. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's been my experience, too. And especially like, yeah, people who are a little like fresher and have the energy too. like it takes some energy, but like that's that's the good energy, too. So in a an environment where a lot of universities are moving more towards online or have had, you know, online programs, a thing that we're dealing with at my institution um, is sort of like, how do you conduct labs? in like an online environment, especially one of the things we're trying to impress on professors. I'm on one of the committees that like helps approve and develop our like gen ed program, but it's like the discovery program or, you know, one of those things. And one of the things we're trying to get across to professors is like, you can't assume that students have anything like maybe not even like a dish and clean water because like students might be homeless or just like not have access to a kitchen or something and I'm assuming some lab work maybe happens in psychology or something I have never taken a psychology class before but I was wondering how if you had to if you had an experience with like OER and like those kinds of situations where maybe something that seems like it should only happen in person has had to move online and how OER has played into that and like how can libraries support um, those kinds of environments and situations? I don't do that kind of work. We don't have that kind of labs, those kind of labs. Um, we do do research, but it's all human subject research. I do have a colleague who does EEG research and that is in person. We don't have the technology right now that you could do that remotely, but I do. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I'm not in STEM. So I we like the kind of labs that we do for me, like I teach a social psychology course that isn't fully OER, but I do have an open access textbook. So I'm, I'm getting there. But that's that's one of the. That's one of the courses that I'm still like, I still have the training wheels on because I'm still afraid to fully let go of the traditional textbook. And the same with my research methods class, partly also because I love the textbook that I have so much. I'm like such a fan person for the author. Um, but I do try to be creative in how can they collect data? So observations, 
things that they're already engaging with and on a daily basis, asking people around them. So, I mean, that's not like, okay, combine these chemicals and tell us what the reaction is. I don't have any idea how you could do that. That would definitely be creativity. Uh, but so I support the the desire to support that kind of work. Um, and sometimes embracing OER and open education absolutely requires creativity and rethinking the way things are done, which I think is a good thing. But I have no answer. <laughs> I'm not a STEM person either. I just had a meeting and we talked about it today. I was like, oh, hey, that sounds relevant. <laughs> Yeah. Normally you, you just do things in the household and explain theoretically like what's going on. Like this is a detergent, what's happening in this reaction, stuff like that. So it's usually something extremely simple, but then you just have to explain it on a college level rel- relative to the course. So it can just be any any kind of chemical reaction or something. Biology is really tough though, but people have done it. Uh, so you you built the queer psychology course specifically using OER, but maybe people uh, would want to know what it, what encompasses queer psychology. What does it mean to queer psychology? Is is that the idea of the title, or is it psychology about queer people, or uh, or the queering of queer people in psychology? Well, to lean on <laughs> queer theory, I'm just going to say yes. Nailed it. Uh, it's all of those things. Uh, absolutely. So I like queer psychology instead of like LGBTQ plus or 2S LGBTQ or LGBT even, because it, it also seems limiting. And it's also uh, within psychology, the, um, like the, the way that things are done, specifically with folks who have non-normative gender and sexual identities is very comparison-based. How are gay people different from straight people? Are their relationships as good? What kind of sex are they having? What are trans people's bodies like? How are they different from cis people's bodies? Like like the differences. Instead of how does homophobia operate at a systemic level that oppresses everyone, particularly queer people? Things like that. So part of the queer psychology was the history of the word, bringing in queer theory. I'm queer. My psychology is queer, so like if I'm involved, it's going to be super queer. And so, yeah, just really bleeding out, like feathering the boundaries around what is psychology even and how do we question it. Um, my course is really built on queer theory as well as intersectional theory and liberation psychology. And that liberation psychology is also a really important aspect to the queer part because of queer liberation. Uh, That's one of my stated goals for the course. So it's one of the funnest classes I've ever created, I think, because it's so elastic. And we, you know, I assign research articles and we talk about like regular boring psychology research stuff, but also it's, it's an exploration of how does structural oppression impact queer and trans folks? How has psychology perceived and treated trans and queer identities, what is the status quo, what's cisnormativity and heteronormativity, and also how do we resist that? How do we challenge it? And and the last module of the course is 
to to uh, end on a high note, because the second to last is all about the oppression. The last module is all about, okay, so what is queer liberation? How do we work toward that? How can we change things where we are, our own location, to make things better for queer and trans people? So I see queer psychology as like it's topical because it focuses on the experiences and centers the voices of queer and trans people, particularly queer and trans folks of color. But also, how does that bleed into other areas of psychology? How do we throw out all the categories? Yeah. So could you talk more about like the process of assembling, especially, you know, I guess this is probably of more Germanity to the... um the library folk here is uh, how did you go through your process of assembling your resources? Cause I looked at it and I was like, this is comprehensive. Cause it, like, I mean, obviously you definitely probably knew about some stuff, but how did you pull together your syllabus and your resources? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And because I had already developed human sexuality, I had a little bit of a head start. I have a whole module in that class about gender and sexual identity. So it's only one module in the whole class. So even though I have sprinkles of you know queer and trans inclusive content across that human sexuality class, there was a lot of stuff that I just couldn't use because it was too much. So I already had sort of a head start and using that and then thinking about broadly, what are the major things that I want people to know, want people to take away? I did look up a lot of other folks' syllabi around this topic. So there are folks who are doing LGBTQ psychology or psychology of gays and lesbians and things like that. And there were a couple syllabi by people who are like explicitly queer themselves and it may or may not surprise you to learn those are the folks I took the most uh, inspiration from. I am out on my campus. Um, I'm out as queer and as trans. So I also didn't want to hide that or how my identities impact the way that I design the course, my motivation for the course. And so that's true both on the faculty staff side as well as the student side. That's not a secret. So it really came down to what do I have time for? What are the major takeaways I want? So when I design a course, regardless of what it is, I really try to make sure I'm aligned in my course objectives, my assessments, and then the support through the instructional materials. So yeah, that's it kind of sounds just sort of it like it magically happens, but there's a lot of searching on the internet, on you know, academic search engines, trying to figure out exactly which articles are the best, what have other people used, who cited a lot, what's yeah. accessible to the students. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, the accessibility component is huge, you know. And there's also other ways like, you know, to go through that too because this is this is the your official library plug. I've actually like done like you can actually get full text access for course purposes. FYI, because I've done that for faculty before um, a semester. So if you have articles that you want to get that you can't get, let us know. <laughs> Well, and I will also uh, give a shout out to my own library staff. I have amazing folks, amazing faculty librarians um, who are super supportive, both of our psychology department as well as our individual faculty. I have, uh, our, yeah, I just, our librarians are amazing. 
Much love to them. Or go on Article Finder Network. (laughs) Ham horn for last week's episode. That's true. You can do that. Yeah, you you can get shit for your students dirty. It's fine. All cops are bastards, and that includes librarians, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Cop- and and in all in all honesty, that is also part of my pedagogy. That like no cop shit, no like all my deadlines are yes. soft. Yes, no cop like, shit as pedagogy. I'm not here to audit people's lives. Show up when you can, and you got the spoons. Like I'm not like live your life. Yeah. I just started a new class and it started with like a lecture, but not like the informative kind. It was just kind of like, I am Dr. Hardass and, uh, you know, that kind of, I, all my stuff is copyrighted. And and then when you download them, it just has big copyright thing all over the top and the bottom. And I was like, what? Why? That's like the kind of professor that like brags about like people failing their course a lot. I met a professor Ooh. who failed people for pirating textbooks. I had a professor like that, and he's pretty much the entire reason why I don't actually have my degree. It's because I got so tired of his shit that I just stopped taking his classes, and he was the only one who offered networking classes at the college I was going to. So, yeah, it's it's always wonderful to hear from teachers like you who <laughs> recognize that their you know students have lives that don't involve textbooks. Yeah. I mean, my biggest barrier around traditionally published textbooks is remembering that I shouldn't be the one to pirate for my students. Like there are lines that I as a professor, like shouldn't be engaged, you know, I just. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Low level of crimes, trying yeah. to minimize the crimes. You can just be like, don't definitely go to these places <laughs> to get it, wink. Well, do what I do and put up a big, big poster, and then the students it's write all the websites on the poster. Here. But you don't have to say anything. Nope. Wink. What my one of my coworkers and I have a joke at work. Like if if a faculty member asks us about SciHub, we just go, SciHub's illegal. <laughs> wink. Yeah, that's just like our line, me and the science librarian. <laughs> It's like how um, libraries have to like, if you, you know, there's always like a sign by like the copier that's like, now don't use this to copy the whole thing, but we're not monitoring that. We don't give a shit. We just have to put that there because if someone does do it and get caught, we can't be sued, but we're not going to be like, you know, looking at you being like, how did you do a certain percentage of that text? Don't know. It's just like, don't do it. Yeah. It's usually why copiers are outside the line of sight. The line of sight of the desk. I saw some of the stuff from your presentation on like what you were using. So, so you weren't just using like traditional models. And you've mentioned like uh, open access materials and research articles, but you're also using things like medium posts and YouTube videos yeah, and stuff like videos, that. Could you go yeah. into like how you're doing? Absolutely. So part of my motivation for incorporating different types of media into the course was also centering the voices of queer and trans people, particularly queer and trans folks of color. And one new thing, this course prep, um, I, you know, OER is wonderful because you are able to sub in things and switch out things and update the course in little bitty pieces instead of just one fell uh, swoop of a textbook. But one thing that I'm doing different this semester that I didn't do last semester was incorporating more poetry and more literature 
style content, so much more interdisciplinary, but absolutely YouTube videos that speak to people's lived experiences, slam poetry. I'm a huge fan of that. And particularly to speak to the experiences of queer and trans folks of color in such a visceral way, uh, really like emotionally engaging way. I have a variety of YouTube videos that range from, you know, the slam poetry to Lil Nas X, of course, to, you know, Vice documentaries and, and other like like um, this semester in class, we watched the Golden Girls episode 72 hours to talk about media covering the HIV AIDS epidemic as it was happening. What does what messages does this episode say about what it was like to live through the epidemic at that point in time? The the episode aired, it was early 1990, so it had been going for a while, but there was still so much misinformation about what it was. So. I really do try to be interdisciplinary. And one of the major projects of the course is a media analysis paper where I want them to track how much queer media are you consuming and what are the stereotypes or what are the tropes that you're seeing? Is it good representation? We talk about the difference between presence and representation. So is it just that, you know, LeFou ends up dancing with some random dude at the end of Beauty and the Beast. Oh, he's super gay. Or is it like meaningful representation where queer people are fully human characters? So I do try to, I mean, I have a lot of research studies and we talk about research and psychology, but I also want to, that's part of the queering for me. I want to incorporate that lived experience piece. I want to design the course both for cishet students who, for whom this is their first real exposure to the experiences of queer and trans folks, but also for my queer and trans students to see their own lived experiences reflected back. And then is there anything you're doing to, like as you're building the course, I'm sure you're, you're having to put in explanations and things like that. Are, are you building towards something that's going to be shareable for other people who want to teach queer psychology? I can. I, I uh, often I'm pretty uh, one day at a time uh, right now. So I'm not really thinking that far out, but I am like folks have emailed me after that open ed conference presentation, contacted me about talking about my course, which I'm so excited about. And I'm happy to share all my materials. I'm just, I just want to give everything away so that everybody can, can do their own version or you know, take bits and pieces, whatever. Yeah. So I, I would love for other people to duplicate or to expand what I'm doing into whatever domain they're doing. And it doesn't have to be queer psychology. I mean, queers are for everyone. So it could be queer sociology, but also it could be like queer physics. I'm, I'm sure if I thought hard enough, Maybe not, but I could talk to somebody who knew physics. I'm sure I could I could help with making a physics course queer. Yeah, same polar magnets trying to stay apart from each other. Pretty sus. <laughs> queer as oh, fuck. Yeah. Very homoerotic. Don't even get me started on neutrinos. <laughs> Intricate rituals. Carnal <laughs> fetish. I had a question about, like, do you have ways for staying current on, I guess literature or other materials that you would use to update not just queer psychology but also your human sexuality course as well 
Yes. So usually it's it's student driven. So the questions that I get from my students, the questions that I get from other people, like a um, faculty at one of the North Dakota schools emailed me earlier this semester and asked if I had any materials for trans men going through pregnancy. And I didn't, but uh, that spurred me to look into it. And I found something that I could send to that faculty, but also guess what got added to my course? So questions that I get today in human sexuality, we were talking about sexual intercourse. And I also have, I talk about the full menu. So it's not just PIV, but today we talked about sounding and muffing. And so I also wanted to find additional resources about how to do that. So for my human sexuality course, it's like an educational course of course. Of course, Jesus. Of course, but also <laughs> of like course, it, of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, but also, <laughs> it's also a skills course. Like I want them to develop communication skills. I want them to develop self advocacy skills, self awareness, understanding them. When you know, what do they want? Where are their boundaries? So, in addition to this, is what STIs are. This is how you can protect yourself from pregnancy. I also want them to develop the skills to be able to be fully realized sexual people. So a lot of the resources that I seek out for that course relate to skill building, knowledge around that. Uh, but again, it, it really has to do with what questions do my students have. I get lots of ideas from the students who are in my class especially my queer and trans students. I'm the co-advisor for our BSU Phoenix group, which is our 2S LGBTQ plus student group. So lots of ideas from those folks. I'm on Twitter way too much. So I'm also like plugged into the trans discourse uh, on Twitter. So like updating language and, and being aware of things that develop there. And the Sopranos. Naturally. Uh, We're so. all into the Sopranos oh, the, right now. Fuck the many saints of Newark, man. Fuck, fuck the many saints of Newark. Like, I want money for having watched that. I'm so mad about that. <laughs> yeah, trans Twitter is just the Sopranos and then shit posts, and that's it. It's great. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. And Fallout New Vegas. I guess I'm not in that part of trans Twitter. Oh. Uh, also, uh, Vintage firearms, fortress building in the late medieval period. Ooh, yeah. And Edith Piaf. Yeah, mine is a lot of like early modernist trans masks. <laughs> it's pretty good. The fancy lads. The fancy lads, yeah. Yeah. You've got a brand. Uh, you said your administration was pretty supportive. Was there any other hurdles uh, in terms of creating the course itself? I would say COVID was the biggest hurdle. My The first semester I offered it, I had planned to have one on campus and one online section, but then COVID messed that up. So they were both online remote. So this semester, again, COVID, I wanted to accommodate folks who might need to be out because of quarantine or exposure or they have COVID. But also I had a fair number of online only folks who wanted to take it, who didn't have the chance to take or weren't able to take it last semester. So this semester I'm teaching one section, but it's a simultaneous online and on campus experience because uh, I had, you know, all the materials 
basically together. I just had to record like lecture videos instead of having the recordings from the synchronous Zoom sessions last semester. Yeah, making sure that folks had the opportunity to engage with each other. That's the biggest hurdle also for online classes in general. Are people going to respond to discussion posts? I use mastery-based grading, so that's always a hurdle for me because I don't grade discussion posts because I only grade summative assessments. So I just have to like encourage them and bug them to talk to each other. <laughs> but my administration has been really supportive. My department is amazing. I'm really lucky to be in a position where my department is really devoted to and wanting to live values of multiculturalism and equity and inclusion. So um, I bring to the table this queer trans piece of that, and I'm happy to hold down this corner of the tent, as it were. But yeah, I really didn't expect to be so, I don't want to, I don't know what comfortable is the right word, but at least like able to be out and authentic at a, you know, a regional rural public university. And, you know, uh, beyond the wall. But here I am. Yeah, I think sometimes the public nature of those schools can be a lot more helpful. Um, having been at like a private rural institution previously, like that was less helpful for folks I knew who were in similar positions. I know they could be out on certain levels, but there were other levels that like they couldn't be as out. But I think the public aspect of that tends to help, at least from what yeah. I've witnessed at other institutions. I mean, I'm a cishet person, so I don't have anything <laughs> to risk, but uh, just from my friends who <laughs> were in similar positions. Yeah. I mean, lucky too that I'm in Minnesota, which has some pretty good uh, sexual right. and gender identity protections at the state level, and oh, I'm a absolutely. state employee, so I get that protection. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The state employee protections are super beneficial, especially in Minnesota. There's um, great benefits there. Yeah, I couldn't remember. Yeah, Bemidji's in Minnesota. One thing listening to you has made me think is, um, especially when you talked about how you were approached, like, oh, hey, do you have resources for like trans men and trans masculine people going through pre pregnancy and you hadn't. And so you looked and then you had, ended up that it even changed your courses. So I was wondering if through the process of developing OER resources and designing courses around that, has that changed how you search for information and how you use libraries and even how you teach your students how to search for information? Like, how do you navigate sources and information differently now that you do this? I would say yes. One of the main ways is that I've just found some excellent, like, big resources, like Scarletine. Cannot say enough good things about Scarletine, uh, especially for my human sexuality class, just A-plus content. Healthline has also been a surprising gem for me. They have some really great include. I they have a really good article on sounding. Did not expect that, but here we are. Yeah, so I have found sources that I go back to for specific content. Planned Parenthood, of course, excellent for, you know, reproductive justice related information. Some yeah, so so some places I go back to. Information literacy is something that I would like to also incorporate more into my courses. You know, I talk about it a little bit in methods, but one idea I have for 
further developing my human sexuality class is that, again, not wanting to do cop shit, I have assessments that they have to complete that I use the quiz tool for, but they're not multiple choice. There's a lot of matching. They're all application driven. So I describe people, match their identity, or here are some symptoms, what STI might they have, or your cis male partner says that he's been tested for every STI. What STIs has he definitely not been tested for? because they don't have tests. So like really application focused and like life skills building, but they're able to use their notes. It's open, but like they could do whatever they want, work together. I don't care. They are just like, I'm testing them on their mastery and however they show that mastery is up to them. So one idea I have for expanding that is then having a follow-up question when they're done with the assessment, what sources did you use? And If you Googled something like evaluate the goodness of that source, like was it Scarletine or was it this Reddit thread you found? Like, how do you evaluate what good information? And I occasionally share uh, memes from, you know, screen caps from Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or something where usually it's somebody who just doesn't understand how bodies work or that women are supposed to orgasm. Uh, And I, you know, make fun of it and challenge it. But one thing that I want to be able to help them build through this course is evaluating information like that. Like when you see stuff on social media or Google search returns, I don't think anybody actually uses Bing. How do you evaluate the information and it's rigorousness i don't know like it's good good goodness is not the right word yeah but, there's a um, like there's how, like a, how do you exercise i always say like how do you exercise your judgment in this situation yes that's like how i i'm the information literacy person in this group hi um <laughs> or as as i call it information shitteracy but like how do you exercise your your judgment that you've built up yes yeah our library liaison, Colleen Deal, who is wonderful, created some materials for like searching, using PsycInfo and Psych articles and evaluating sources and things like that for my research methods course. But I do, I would love to be able to incorporate more library resources or have a sort of a bi-directional relationship. At this point, the limitation for me is time. I don't say no enough (laughs) to committees or or things. So I'm pretty jam-packed on my schedule. But yeah, building literacy, that's, I think, a, a lacking skill for our students coming up, really focused on regurgitating the content for standardized tests, but not so much on understanding what's the message being given here? Like, what's the subtext of this? Yeah, that's really interesting. That that's literally something we were talking about in like our team's chat at work today was like from for like people transitioning from high school to college and like actually one of my coworkers and I who we deal with a lot of graduate students, we see this a lot in graduate students that like even across the board they were asking us like what do you see most of your students struggle with coming in from like high school to college? like as transitionary problem or like you like what are the areas that like you see as like college readiness issues and like both Anna and I who are who work with a lot of graduate students we're just like well across the board we see a lot of students struggling with this which is like 
focusing your topics and things like that. And like a lot of people say, like a similar things are things that you'll see across the board, regardless of how far advanced someone is. So I'm a metadata librarian. Like I'm one of the people that like make sure that the catalog works and everything. But one of the sort of non-metadata areas of interest that I have that I studied a little bit for my thesis is, is information seeking behavior. So when someone like, and even like question information. So like when someone has a question, how is that like actually made in their brain? And then how is that translated to like asking it? And then how does that asking happen? Are they going to a search engine? Are they finding a librarian? Where are they looking? And so it's fascinating because so often in academia, professors will kind of have like a kind of laissez-faire, like, I don't care as long as you cite it, it's consistent. um, And it's, you know, a good source, or you'll have the like, if you don't have this article from this person, you obviously didn't do your research, right? And so it's really refreshing to hear you be like, you know, this is open notes, basically, but also like, tell me your information seeking process. What did you look at? What did you search in Google? Because I feel like, in at least when I went to library school and I was in um, grad school 2015 through 2017, we like learned like Google techniques and like our reference courses and stuff to, to Whereas teach people. We, I'm older and I went yeah. in 2010 and they told us no Google in your reference class. Right. Yeah. But, like I went, I went to library school during the Google bad period. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think we've swung back around to Google bad cause they really don't do bullying anymore. And all the algorithms just bring up right wing stuff cause it ranks on engagement exactly. now than necessarily anything Which else. Is yeah. Like, yeah. But, yeah um, the algorithms and stuff are pretty fakakta. Fucked. Dr. Sophia Noble, shout out. (laughs) Yeah. And there's still like a split in librarianship. And Carrie, I saw you tweeting about this like the other day or last week or something. I've been ill about like, there's still librarians, like the sort of like, is Wikipedia useful? Like, you know, like do as librarians, do we teach people how to use Wikipedia as researchers, as students? Right. Or do we not? I'm very pro Wikipedia as like a really great resource. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, there was. Yeah. Um, actually, it was one of the local colleges up here in Milwaukee. Oh, was it? Um, yeah. Tweeted like they did the meme wrong, which was like the car <laughs> turning off the interstate. And it's like, go talk to your librarian instead of using Wikipedia. <laughs> and it's like, no, Wikipedia is <laughs> fine. Like you yeah, can Wikipedia literally great. Like they have articles at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so there are like, literally research articles at the end of Wikipedia. It's like the credits. Yes. And so, like with the sort of like open educational resource framework, sort of teaching students not just okay, here's how you go find the articles and here's where you look in the textbook, but actually engaging with these other open resources on the internet and encouraging them to find them on their own and evaluate them and not just rely on you to do it right for them. oh my um, ass is so chapped right now i got this <laughs> i got this professor who's like you gotta go find a book on your topic an academic Ugh. book and someone's like i'm writing my professor approved my topic it's jumping beans <laughs> Oh, it's a cat. Yeah, it's a mod. It's a mod. 
say hi, Maude. Hi, Maude. So I get this email today. It's like, hey, my professor approved my topic. It's jumping beans. And I need an academic book about it. And I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) And so my boss sends me this gif of a bean jumping, trying to get an apple. (laughs) Oh, it was funny, but I, I, I am brilliant. And I said, well, you know, jumping beans actually have larvae and then inside them that's moth larvae that make them jump and so i was like well here's some books that have information about the the moth in them but you might want to research like the ecological landscape around them that make the moth burrow into the bean there you go there you go and you might be able to find a book on that so I'm meeting with a student on Friday. Anyway, but that's like, don't <laughs> give me those fucking bullshit assignments. That's that's fucking cop shit. And also with students, like in a, uh, you, these might be older research studies, but like a lot of like info seeking behavior studies, especially of undergraduates, have sort of found that if it's too difficult to get to, they're just not gonna do it. Like it's more right. a matter of like. I, as part of my job, I help manage our discovery layer. And I, I don't know how much non, like, I don't know how much professors know about that, but like the catalog where it also shows the articles and stuff like that's where it brings in things external to the catalog. That's It's usually like the place where there's a search bar and you type in what you need and it brings you a book review first. Yeah, that, exactly that. Um, so I manage that. And a conflict I have all the time is the reference librarians want this to be a like imagine me doing like a rainbow a tool for information you know what i i I hate (laughs) i hate discovery layers i don't use them i tell people not to use them like they can be useful but like just go to your database go to psych info yeah it's it's much better go to your happy place go to psych info but um like a student like i care more about like the student trying to do their paper at 3 a.m like eating pizza yeah. Than I do about the the librarian wanting to make sure they have the skills, because like students just just want to get their their homework done. Exactly. Right. They want like oh, the yeah. path of least resistance, and so I with OER is that providing a path of least resistance, or does sometimes that create more resistance because you have to go to a certain place to get the resources? Like, do you have to go to the through this link in Canvas or Moodle or whatever you're using just to get to the thing your professor's telling you to get to? And so I, I do really like your approach of being like, well, where did you go to get this and, and how? Um, just because yeah, I, just I weirdly don't see a lot of people doing that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. like that a lot. <laughs> well, and that's how I designed assignments too. Like, show your process. That's that's how you learn. Yeah. Well, and that's what they're going to be doing out in the wild anyway, right? Like, they leave the classroom They'd be like, oh, man, I remember this one sex thing or this one queer thing that I we were talking about. What was that? And then they Google or, yeah, they just Google. What was Um, that porn we watched in class? Exactly. And I want them to be able to. With the party hats. (laughs) I want to watch this one now. (laughs) uh, Figure out for themselves like a good resource. It's kind of funny how often that crosses over with technology because like STEM, you're like, oh, yeah, you just know where to go for it. It's like two thirds of my job is just 
knowing what sites to click on and what sites not to click on in a Google search. Like if I have a problem and I'm troubleshooting something, that's pretty much how I do it. So like click on docs.microsoft.com over something that ends in XYZ or something like that, you know? So So it's actually really funny that I said that because I was telling my friends about how to search for porn on archive.org the other day. Incredible. (laughs) They're like, well, how do you find it? I was like, well, you don't type in porn. You have to type in the stuff you like, like you would search for porn. It's called information seeking behavior. Like I was talking about porn as an information, like finding porn as an information seeking behavior to my friends the other day. Like I was just like, and they were just like totally called me. I was like, isn't this the nerdiest fucking, they're like, nerdiest fucking shit you've ever heard right here there's got to be a good research article or something about information seeking behavior on Pornhub I mean that's a Brie Watson article waiting to happen yeah I can't think of any sites off the top of my head but I I know that um, porn sites especially the ones that have subscription models have some of the best like taxonomy oh yeah um, they have great because data. if people are paying for it they better be able to find what they want and find it right now oh, and yeah. so like porn sites for like tagging and folksonomy and categorization and taxonomy that's kind of where you want to go to study that kind of stuff because it's like kind of the top notch in the industry because they want their customers to be happy and keep paying them so and that's keep you know, just a fun them. fact <laughs> there's high competition is there fasted porn searching like oh, a, yeah. a delimiter on like time and be like 81 to 85 uh for ages i think so like for like no, i mean years. if you're into age fetishes i think you can go specific there's not like a good taxonomy for like pubic hair, i know how to though. type in gilf if i'm looking for Especially for men, anyway. (laughs) Sorry, we're getting deep into, like, porn search behaviors. Um, Like, I don't know that, like, the free sites have good faceted searching, at least from, like, the last time I used one. But anyway. But, like, Pornhub, they have, I think they've, like, made their data public for researchers. So, like, you could research, you could research that as a um, potential intersection of things freaks i mean all the titles on there are just metadata slurry now true well it's also probably too much bot behavior it's probably useless that is actually probably true there's probably a lot of bot behavior but anyway we try to end on and some butt behavior (laughs) that's the good shit right there yeah it is I was uh, going to say we try to end on action-oriented questions, and mine was, you know, how can people do what you did? And I, I asked you earlier if you had any plans for sharing out your um, course design, and when you said, you know, you haven't thought about it yet, this is a big problem. So this is going to be like my call to librarians, is you have to facilitate that process. It's the same thing as putting stuff into a repository. You can't just tell people this is where the repository is, put it there. You have to offer mediated access or else your repository won't grow. So you need to go to faculty members who are doing OER and then tell them, uh, we will put this all on like OER commons for you. But then, and then usually the professor will be like, okay, well, I want to fix it up. I want to make it pretty first. And then they never get back to you. But at least the offer is there, and that's the only way it's it's going to get done. But also, librarians, keep bothering your faculty. Like, actually do that. Be a pain in their ass. Yeah, if it works. I mean, otherwise, there's some people I just don't want to talk to. Kat, do you have anything coming up? 
uh, any upcoming research or any presentations that you'd like to plug? Would you like to plug your Twitter or do you want people to leave you alone? (laughs) Oh, that's the eternal question. I am in a perpetual state of working on something. So I don't have anything like obviously coming up, but uh, Twitter is always fine. You know, the, both the joy and anxiety of having a Twitter notification like, oh, somebody engaged. Oh, no, somebody engaged. <laughs> so, uh, but I do love talking about course design and pedagogy and and also like just querying the hell out of that. So I'm happy to chat with other folks who are also interested in that. And I really also want to stress that this doesn't have to be queer psychology. It could be queer whatever you want. I'm sure that there is possibility for queering whatever discipline you are working in. Queer physics. Arthur agrees. Absolutely. Do it. You'll figure it out. I'm sure someone has talked about it. I'm sure someone has. I saw a drag queen talking about like quantum physics as like a queer thing. So it's it's definitely out there, but this is the problem with STEM people is they think like their subjects have absolutely no overlap with uh, society. And they're really fucking wrong. I select for the sciences for this reason. So this is why I volunteered wrong. to be the science selector. Just so wrong. <laughs> you're so wrong, science. Sometimes you're wrong. Guess what, science? You're wrong. You're wrong. You're I wrong, spend science. most of my time, whenever I can spend money, getting like indigenous environmental history, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. That shit Ooh, rips. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, our collection development librarian is already pretty good about that. So I didn't really need to be the one to do it. They've already usually bought whatever I was looking at, but I do just try and find like things that otherwise aren't going to get picked up. But it's it's hard because library collection development is kind of strict on some things. So you, yeah. I really like the the freedom you have when you're building a course and you can just be like, oh, I'm going to put a Medium article in here. I'm going to put a blog in here. I'm going to put That's something cool. just weird in here that like you wouldn't normally catalog. The library wouldn't usually be involved, but... Also, Jay, the thing you were talking about earlier about finding things easier, course guides are really good for that. Yes. Um, especially for introductory courses. I'm trying to teach our instruction librarians how to make them. And make them look uh, good and not be link dumps. Yep. Not make not be everything. It, it's got to be specific to the course. Yep. So you take the syllabus and you'd be like, okay, you've got an assignment that wants you to do biography. Here's the biography database. Go there, use that. But then, you know, eventually you're going to have to teach students like – you know, you're going to be out in the world one day and you're not going to have a course guide. So yeah, both approaches are important. One other challenge that I was thinking about as, as the conversation was going was for me, letting go of that, those vestiges of authority. Um, You know, it's so easy to fall back on the textbook. What does the textbook say? I mean, and of course, textbooks are written by people. They don't fly out of nowhere, but letting go of that and, and acknowledging that we learn through a variety of different ways and those aren't less valid just because they're not packaged in this glossy $100, if you're lucky, uh, traditionally published book. So that can be scary the first time you do that, especially for me. I mean, I don't even have tenure and I'm a few years out of grad school, like, who am I, right? Like, who am I to say, this is what the course is. But I mean, people are doing that all the time, right? So there's not, I don't see a lot of difference between learning like, you know, like the 
just like being out in the world and absorbing information and having a more structured, sure, there's assessment of that learning in the classroom, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other equally valid ways to learn and absorb the material. Yeah, well said. Cat? Is that the other cat? No, it's still Prax. Okay. I don't know. Amos is on the, he's on another cat tree. He's already taking a nap. He looks exactly like (laughs) Amos and Prax look identical, except Prax is long hair and Amos is short hair. Thanks for coming on. If there's anything else that you have upcoming, I'll definitely retweet it to the account in the future. Free retweets for life. That's the (laughs) library punk promise because we're here to make friends on the internet. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for reaching out and I had a great time and love talking about this shit. So yeah, that was to- awesome. I yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Was really thrilled about what you've done. Cause putting that together is no small feat. Um, and, and, and putting it into like the way you teach as well and not just the resources that you use that. Yeah. Making it the whole, Oh yeah, there's another cat. It's cat time, baby. Uh, <laughs> oh, and Maud's down here. We're having a cat party. It's cat party. You hear that, Arthur? You're going to have some friends, bub? Oh, yeah. He was rubbing his teeth on the corner of my laptop. Oh, it's Maddie nice. Murder Mitts. Arthur, right. it's a friend. What a great way to close out the pod. <laughs> Say bye, Arthur. Cat for cat. Awesome. I planned it this way. Good night. <laughs>